Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello, I'm Kieran Hancock, business editor of the Irish Times. And I'd like to tell you about Inside Business, an Irish Times podcast about Irish business and economics. Each week, I'll be talking to business leaders and experts about how to get our economy moving again in the months ahead. The Irish Times would like to welcome Davy Group as the new sponsor of Inside Business. Download episodes each Wednesday from irishtimes.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Thursday, April the 30th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin responded yesterday to the Green Party's position paper on what it regards as the key issues should it decide to enter into negotiations for the formation of a government. Chief amongst those is the demand that the state should double the speed of its plans to reduce carbon output between now and 2030 to a figure of 7% per year. In a little while, we're going to be joined by Fia Kelly to discuss the politics of all this, plus other politics knocking around at the moment. But first of all, today's Irish Times science section carries an in-depth piece by three scientific experts on what that 7% figure would actually entail. I talked earlier to one of those experts, Dr Hannah Daly, who lectures in energy systems modelling. Hannah, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very interesting article in today's Irish Times on the on the science page, actually, which is which is where it should be, of course. And it digs a little bit further into this question, which I don't think that the country has has thought about deeply enough, given that it's the key point of discussion should the Green Party come to an agreement to enter into government. And and that is the commitment to a 7% per annum reduction in carbon output over the next 10 years, which would amount roughly to a 50% overall reduction by, by the end of the decade. First of all, where does that uh, number come from? So in, in 2015, Ireland, with most other countries in the world, signed up to the Paris Agreement, which um, was, was a global agreement to, that we need to reduce global temperature change to at most two degrees Celsius by the end of the century, with ideally keeping um, temperature change to 1.5 degrees Celsius as much as possible. That's to avert you know, catastrophic environmental impacts and, uh, and things like that. Um, so from that target, that temperature target, Climate scientists have told us what um, to stay within a certain global temperature limit. We can infer this certain budget of greenhouse gases um, that the world as a, as, a, as a total can emit. And we call that the global carbon budget. So it's very important to stress that what mainly matters for climate change is the total cumulative emissions rather than emissions at a specific end date. Uh, because every single tonne that we emit matters. And um, how we sort of spend this budget matters. So whether we do this rapid decarbonisation now so we, that we can spend more of that budget later on, uh, or whether we kind of take a slower pace and then rely on more novel technologies uh, later in the century, like like negative emissions uh, um, uh, targets. So if we, if we kind of look at this global carbon budget, we can allocate that 
to every country in the world in some kind of equitable way. We can say, um, so if as a world we can emit um, a certain amount of, of greenhouse gases, we can break that down into what that means for Ireland by uh, by by saying um, what what we can as every individual person emit in the world. And that gives Ireland roughly a budget of between 200 and 700 million tonnes of CO2 from energy to emit by 2070. A colleague of mine, James Glynn, uh, did some very important work to look at what a, a carbon budget for Ireland looks like. Um, depending, and that budget depends on the probability that we want to achieve a certain limit, so 1.5 or 2 degree limit. So we currently emit about 40 million tonnes of CO2 from energy every year. So you can see that if we keep emitting energy at that rate, our carbon budget will be taken up very, very quickly. So that 7% decarbonisation target comes from a global study uh, published by the UN last year in 2019, which said that as a world, greenhouse gases need to reduce by a minimum of 7.6% by 2030 to be in with a chance of, of um, achieving the um, um, the Paris Agreement. And that's where the Greens are saying we need to do um, kind of immediate, deep um, and rapid uh, decarbonisation um to, to be consistent with this global goal of, of achieving uh, temperature targets. Now, Ireland is one of the most wealthy countries in the world. So, you know, you can argue that um, our, the burden on of, um, of Ireland's decarbonisation trajectory should be greater, you know, so we can allow countries in developing world to, to still use fossil fuels. Um, but what really matters, as I said, is that is that carbon budget, getting agreement on what, what Ireland's carbon budget is, and then deciding how we can spend that over the next um number of years and how that is allocated between different sectors in society. One thing I've just seen has been the um, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael response to the green um, to the green letter in their, their list of questions. And one of the things that they can commit to, it looks like in the first um, 100 days of, um, of government, uh, is to put uh, carbon budgets in place in legislation. And I think that's really the, the key piece of legislation that's needed um, to, to, to to do that, what we really need to discuss is not necessarily the the emissions reduction target, but what our carbon budget is by twenty fifty. And before we get into the detail of what that might mean for Ireland, um, have other countries around the world committed to similar reductions? Um, so if we look out to 2050, many countries are now looking at net zero energy systems. So the UK has put that into legislation. The UK has been uh, quite uh, leading in um, in, in decarbonising. Um, so since the 2008 climate change bill there, they have put carbon budgets into legislation. So they actually set out legally binding budgets of five year carbon budgets. They look in advance, I think, between seven and 10 years in advance. And they say, OK, uh, trans, you know, as, as a as a. Over this five-year period, we can emit exactly this amount as a maximum, and then they reduce the, that carbon budget every year. And that had been going to an 80% reduction target, but last year they introduced um, uh, a net zero bill. So basically the, 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 the ambition of that has been ratcheted up. Um, that sh- uh, in Ireland, our analysis shows that um, to meet different temperature budget budgets, we can decarbonise at 7% a year now, and have more emissions to emit later for the kind of harder, harder to decarbonize sectors, or we can kind of decarbonize slower, and then we need to go into vastly negative um, uh, technologies uh, later in the century. It's important to also distinguish between energy sector emissions and agriculture, and I'd be happy to get into that too. Yeah, and we will definitely go into that sec. But just one last question in terms of the overall there. We're, we're talking here about commitments, 
governments, British government, for example, making a commitment to to, to certain uh, achieving certain targets. We're familiar with the government governments in Ireland in the past making certain commitments or signing up to certain commitments, and then failing to meet them without a lot of the time serious consequences. Um, are there international consequences um, in terms of EU penalties, for example, in terms of failing to meet any of these numbers? Yes, so we have, um, so we're on track to, um, we were on track to missing um, quite significantly our 2020 obligations for emissions in um, in what are called the non-emissions traded sectors. So there's an emissions trading scheme where there's a market mechanisms for, for decarbonising uh, but most of Ireland's emissions are in this non-traded sector, and we have um, a, a limit on non-emissions traded sector emissions for for 2020. And we were on track to to paying hundreds of millions in, in fines um, as a result of missing that target. Now, with the COVID crisis, it looks like Ireland's emissions will be reduced by a minimum of five percent this year, uh, probably more depending on how long the lockdown lasts. So we might actually sneak under that um, that uh, that 2020 EU limit. Um, it's it actually in a similar way that uh, Ireland managed to meet our Kyoto targets because, um, which was the previous sort of uh, global um, uh, global agreement before the Paris Agreement. We managed to sneak under that because of um, because of the, the recession in two thousand and eight. So these aren't really um, models of decarbonizing, I suppose, recessions and and um, and pandemics. You know, we probably need to go to more structural uh, structural changes in in the economy. And the next, uh, the next big uh, milestone is is the twenty thirty um, EU obligations, um, and the climate action plan, the existing sort of government strategy, was uh, designed around reducing emissions at about three percent per year, and that was designed to meet the EU obligation. But the EU now is is increasingly looking at the science and looking at the need to do more rapid immediate de- decarbonisation, and so it looks like um, our obligations for twenty thirty will become more onerous, and this is again behind the Green Party. Um, um kind of highlighting the need to do to do to do faster decarbonization than what was planned but you struck on a, on a very important point that um Ireland is very good at making targets um I, I did my phd over 10 years ago and part of that was looking at a previous ambition to have um EVs uh, electric vehicles to be about 10% of the the car fleet by 2020 and we're of course nowhere near that um that ambition so you know we actually have lots of targets in the climate action plan a million EVs um Six hundred thousand houses retrofitted, heat pumps, seventy uh, percent renewable electricity, but there uh, many of those targets have no policy behind them, um, and the Environmental Protection Agency does does projections of of uh, Ireland's greenhouse gas emissions, and they think that uh, with existing policies, so the existing actual policies that that and and, and financial commitments that go- the government has made, we're on track to actually increasing emissions by twenty thirty, not even coming close to the climate action plan. So that's where um, you know we really need to highlight that going from even going from now to three percent is hugely challenging, and going from three to seven percent is another you know order of magnitude more difficult. That being said, um, the, the the main sort of policy tool that is needed is rightly put forward in um, in the Fianna Fáil Fine Gael response to the Green Party, and that's carbon budgets. So if we put into place carbon budgets, that is the total amount that we can emit over a five year period, and make different government departments accountable to those carbon budgets, make their make their budget lines um, suffer if they don't meet those targets. And I think as 
I worked in the UK for a number of years and remember it being said that the that the UK Minister for Climate Change could go to jail if they didn't, you know, I don't know if it's if it's that serious, but you know, to, to, to really make uh, to really make these things accountable. Carbon budgets also give a very strong signal to society, to, to businesses about what's coming down the line. It also they also allow flexibility because you know we can kind of spell out different formulations of the energy system that would meet the decarbonization targets. Um but um, but you know, technologies get cheaper over time. Um, different circumstances change. You know, our lifestyles change. So carbon budgets also give a flexibility uh, for uh, for us to meet targets in different ways as as the world evolves. You know. So let's break this down, shall we? Into into three, I suppose, key areas. One is the the generation and consumption of energy. One is transport, and one which you mentioned briefly earlier um, is is agriculture. In relation to energy, I was looking at a at an article by Harry McGee in the Irish Times this week, and he was talking about you know renewable energy sources and specifically um, wind. And he was he was pointing out that I think, for example, the Green Party wants to see is it five gigs of uh, five gigawatts of Ireland's energy generated by wind energy by by twenty thirty. And he points out that you know these massive offshore wind farms, which are being built around the world, usually in relatively shallow waters, which unfortunately we don't have off the western seaboard, where where most of our most of our wind is. They're, they're enormous. The British are building 600 of them, each one about two-thirds the height of the Eiffel Tower on the Dogger Bank, which is a, a shallow part of the of the North Sea. And those will generate something a little bit over um, three gigs of, of energy. So you're talking something of an order larger than that to be built off the Western seaboard. I mean, hugely, a hugely, hugely demanding engineering uh, project. And presumably, partly... The question is, does the technology get better and cheaper and it, does it become easier to, to, to put these things, for example, floating on the sea rather than building them on the seabed? Yeah, so so a, Ireland is, is already really world class in wind energy. So we have um, for, for a single electricity grid, and this is where the technical challenge is, is, is meeting a high share of a single electricity grid with variable renewables. Variable renewable is one that you can't just turn on and off. You know, the wind the wind blows when it wants, the sun shines when it shines when it wants. So they're known as non-dispatchable sources of electricity. Um, and always electricity supply needs to meet demand exactly. So we have already a very high share of this non-dispatchable electricity on 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 the grid. Uh, I think the highest in the world, actually. Uh, so Airgrid are, are very, very world leading in this. We have a great um, wind industry, very developed wind industry. And the Climate Action Plan already sets out very ambitious target to increase that uh, with, with renewables accounting for 70% of electricity in the Climate Action Bill. So there's there's quite a, a strong level of political consensus that you know we need to continue and draw upon our our expertise in wind um, and also introduce things like solar um, and going to offshore wind. That's sort of not contentious. Um, the thing is is that this the, the going from a three percent decarbonisation strategy to seven percent requires us to go much further than that. So to look into options that can't easily be electrified so because kind of to go back uh one thing that needs to go hand in hand with with low carbon electricity is to electrifying end uses basically to electrifying transport and heat um there's only a limit to how much transport think about freight trucks i think about aviation i think about shipping that we can't electrify um there's only there's a limit to how much we can get from um from electric heat uh, so we need to look into options that, that, that can't be electrified. Um, that might include hydrogen. It might include decarbonizing gas with carbon capture and storage. So that's basically taking uh, carbon out of the smokestack 
um, it's it's a it's a quite a, a new technology, um, and, and not necessarily very developed. And in the, in the longer term, maybe nuclear. So something that we got from this study that that we published in the Irish Times is is that um, um, you know, we we need to go further in all of the options that are on the table right now, which are renewable electricity and electrifying things. Um, but we also need to go into these areas that may not necessarily be um, uh, palatable to everybody. And uh, those include especially renewable fuels, liquid and and, um, um, and gaseous biofuels to replace um, uh, oil and, and gas would be a significant one as well. And the, the commitment, um, which you mentioned earlier, to a million electric vehicles um, by by the end of the decade always seemed a bit excessive to me. It seemed to be a like-for-like replacement of the internal combustion engine by individual cars driven by electricity, which seemed to me perhaps not to be as radical a change in the way we move ourselves and the things we need around the country. Um, what do you think about that? And if if we're really going to take this on board, does it mean that a lot of the, the road plans which are in the current spatial uh, development plan originated by the last government, things like a motorway between Cork and Limerick, a ring road around Galway, an enhanced road from Dublin to Derry. Do they all need to be just set aside? Well, I think we're not going to get around the car being sort of still important in 2030. Um, but, you know, there's there's a need to not just focus on energy technologies to solve this. You know, the, if, if we just try to solve the, the, the decarbonisation challenge with energy technologies and different fuels alone, uh, it'll make it much more difficult. And it won't also address all the other negative things that come from from energy and transport systems as, as we currently have them. So, you know, there's no need for us to build society around everybody driving to work at nine, you know, eight o'clock every morning. Um, we spent a huge amount of time in our cars. So um, let me see if I've uh, figures from the last um, um, census and, um, and you know, the average person who dr- drives by car spends about an hour in their car every day. I think with this lockdown, people are recognising that um, they, they see cleaner air, they can hear the birds sing. Um, they're saving an awful lot of time by not being in their car. They're saving an awful lot of expense. Cars are really, really expensive. So the Greens rightly, as part of their, their questions to the... Um, uh, to the main political parties, is how to reformulate it and restructure society so that we don't necessarily have to get in the car every time we want to do something. Um, so they want to massively look at uh, walking and cycling infrastructure. Now that will have a big co-benefit of getting people, you know, off their off their bums. You know, B- basically we need to. I, I I used to cycle to work every day. It was like the best part of my day. It really always put me in a good mood, and it meant I didn't have to to. Um, to go to the gym, you know, also saved me an awful lot of money. It meant I wasn't adding to traffic. I wasn't emitting, um, emitting admittedly, I have a diesel car, but <laughs> I wasn't, uh, I wasn't emitting air pollution, things like that. So I think we, we don't just need to see getting, um, reducing our dependence on cars as sort of an onerous environmental issue. We need to see it as improving our quality of life and improving society. And then we need to structure investments and structure infrastructure around um, around achieving that target. If you see other countries in uh, Europe and especially cities, cities are built around being compact people walking to work and cycling to work and and people can have a much better quality of life as a result of that, you know. I think a matter of, a colleague of mine looked at um, a census and uh, the number of girls cycling to uh, school in Ireland and there was, you know, less than a dozen girls actually cycled to school in Cork, you know. That's uh, <laughs> it's such a pity, I think. It's. I mean, I would totally take that on board. But I mean, why, how do you feel then about the way this is this discussion is often framed? Um, I, I think wrongly as a as an urban versus rural 
uh, or maybe urban versus rural plus exurban um, way, ways of life that we do have very dispersed patterns of settlement in this country and they exist for for lots of reasons some of them more more contentious than others but that a lot of the a lot of the key issues around how we get around how we get to work where we work in relation to where we live are seen by some people as as posing a greater threat i suppose to their current way of life than it would to other people other people i should say like me i mean like if i was allowed work in the irish times at the moment physically go into the office i could walk there in 40 minutes or so there's many many people around the country for whom that is very far from the case of course and that's why there's different solutions for different parts of society you know i am um, uh, i i think no one's no one's no one's saying that people who live in rural ireland are going to have to walk to work you know that's just obviously not not feasible but there are um there are changes that we can make Every, a lot of people are getting used to working remotely myself included um and i think coming out of this um this pandemic for 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 those uh who walking who who remote working is a possibility i think we'll we'll learn to to shift online that bit and reduce our energy demand more and again have savings and so on um, but electric vehicles are really uh, um, the technology has come on an awful lot, and that's so. You know, the, the electric vehicles are 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 a very good solution for for a lot of people living in the countryside. Um, I used to cycle to work, I said, but I actually, um, against my good carbon or my environmental conscious, um, recently bought a one-off house in the middle of the countryside, um, heated by oil, you know, <laughs> and. Um, and when when I have to start commuting to work again, I'll I'll uh, will have to buy a second car, and it will be an electric car because um I'll have a, a guaranteed you know a twenty five thirty kilometer uh, trip um you know with with parking and and fueling and it will save an awful lot of petrol. It, the uh, EVs are really really nice to drive as well. They're they're quiet and smooth, uh, and they've got no emissions. So you know no one is saying that everyone has to walk to work or everyone has to have an EV. It's or everyone has to you know take the bus. It's about um mapping out um um how we should structure urban development and also village development, to be honest. You know, we we, sh- we should be developing villages and towns in a way that people want to live in them as well um, and, and making solutions that are right for different people. So while it will affect urban and rural d- dwellers differently, we should be really focusing on the benefits rather than the downsides and, and sort of making it um, us versus them, I think. How important are contribution do things like a, a different approach to managing our peatlands and bogs on the one hand and a different approach to afforestation in the country? How, how important are those two elements to the overall picture? Um, so I... Uh, you know, my, 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 my academic background is, is energy systems, um, which covers about two thirds of our greenhouse gas emissions. So my sort of academic, uh, hat on, I, I would, I would sort of leave that to the experts, to Chagask, to, 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 to bio experts. But just personally, I, um, I, I, I really think that we should be making more of our, of our, um, of our native woodlands and our and our native sort of heritage, which which are peatlands, which are woodlands, um, and things like that. So I, you know, I I I would love to to see um, more forestry in Ireland, more more native forestry, not not this sort of uh, um, horrible coniferous dark um, forest that that, that that you often see. Um, so we need to think about biodiversity along with biodiversity and rural heritage, even tourism, things like that. And access to the countryside, it really adds to people's. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it can add an awful lot to rural Ireland. And does it make a measurable contribution to the carbon issue? It does to a certain extent, but really, um, uh, I don't have the the numbers from the top of my head. But but land use change can add about maybe two or three tons per year um, from the climate action plan. Um, 
and it's 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 an important for biodiversity as well. Uh, what we really need to focus on is is agriculture, which is a third of greenhouse gas emissions, and that comes from things like fertilizer use and energy use in agriculture, but mainly comes from from uh, cows from from burping and farting cows, basically. Um, and and that will be very very difficult to tackle. So we did so we did this this um, analysis of um, basically. If if uh, emissions from agriculture only decarbonize to 2030 at the level envisaged in the Climate Action Plan, and that's 1% per year um, reduction in emissions from agriculture, and that's from things like manure management and different types of fertilizer application, so it doesn't tackle, um, uh, say, livestock numbers. If agriculture only reduced emissions at 1% per year, then the energy sector to make up for that would have to decarbonize at about 14, 15% per year. And that would really be, um, that would really be, I think, outside the realms of possibility to, to see how the energy sector could do with that. So I think it's very important to distinguish between, um, the, carbon emissions in um, in the energy sector and methane emissions in agriculture. And we should have uh, separate targets for, for each of those things. So what does that mean then for the livestock industry in Ireland? I mean, cows in particular, but presumably other livestock. I mean, does that, as farmers' representative organisations have suggested, mean that, um, that those who are proposing these reductions are want to see a dramatic reduction in the herd count in the country? That's that's not for me to speculate how that can be achieved. But can it be done without that? I think that's the really tricky, contentious issue. So we're saying that basically with the current decarbonisation plan for agriculture, energy can't make up for that um, and to meet the overall 7% reduction target. You know, it really would be infeasible for energy to reduce at 14, 15% per year. Um, and so unless we look at diversifying agriculture, that would be extremely difficult unless we had separate targets for energy and biogenic methane. Biogenic methane is what comes from um, from cows, um, livestock, really. And I know you're not a politician, you're a scientist, um, but in a way, reading your article in, in today's Irish Times, it seems very much to come down to that, you know, that there are, there are huge challenges in energy, there are huge challenges in transport and the way, and the way we order our life and that but that the numbers just won't be achievable unless we seriously take the challenge in agriculture on as well. Yes, yes, that is that is that is the case. Um, you know, I, as I said, my my research focuses on on what we need to do in in the energy system, um, and I think you know, I, th- I think we do keep talking about challenges, and it is formidably challenging to reduce to half emissions from energy. But we should also look at the at the benefits that that would bring. So, it's reading yesterday that fossil fuel imports cost Ireland around six billion euros every year. That's about fifteen million euros every day every day that we spend on fossil fuels. So, you know, a lot of these energy efficiency measures would mean that we wouldn't be spending on on petrol, diesel, kerosene for, for, for the home. So these energy efficiency measures can pay back um, in people's budget, budgets and business budgets over a number of years. So it's really a matter of financing that is the biggest challenge there. These sort of investments might be expensive, but they might pay themselves back over the lifetime. Um, and we also need to look at the benefits for um, for health. Right now, um, the EPA suggests that about uh, 1,500 people die prematurely every year as a result of air pollution. That comes from transport, but it mainly comes from burning solid fuels uh, in homes. So that's burning peat and coal and and kind of wet wood that creates smoke that um, that causes um, 
that causes issues with people's health. That's a huge health burden. Uh, it's often hidden because, you know, on people's death certificate, it doesn't say, you know, died of air pollution, but it really contributes to heart attacks, to strokes, to cancers and so on. So we need to look at, at that kind of benefit. Again, energy security uh, right now, having a very fossil fuel dependent energy system, we're at the mercy of um, of global oil markets. Uh, so price fluctuations in, in global energy markets affect us an awful lot. Uh, retrofitting our homes and making our homes much more cozy and warm, you know, can it's much nicer to live in a, in a warm, evenly heated home rather than having to sort of sit up to the fire uh, to, to stay warm. And that's very important for people's health as well. Having cold homes and damp homes has, has a big health burden on people. Uh, another thing, um, and, and also this, this was brought out in the uh, the response from um, from the green um, to the green party letter is um, is that uh, we have a huge amount of energy poverty in the country. So around a third of households live in energy poverty. That's where they spend more than ten percent of their disposable income on keeping their home warm and keeping their lights lit. Um, that's one of the highest levels of energy poverty uh, in the OECD, um, and that. Um, uh, and and the, so so the measures that we take to decarbonize energy need to kind of first look at these win-win situations that that for example you know getting people home working uh, working from home getting cleaner air warmer homes energy security well-being and all all things like that so we we can focus on the cost an awful lot but what we also need to look at is the benefits that this can bring our record has not been great over the last twenty years twenty five years as this challenge became became more and more apparent um, I mean finally how optimistic or confident might you be that we can actually take this on in a way that we haven't done previously? Where, as you said, we've really only met our targets by accident because of economic shocks rather than because of actual uh, strategy and policy? I did my my PhD in UCC. I finished around um, uh, seven or eight years ago at this stage. And I did my PhD exactly looking at this, the impact of policies on um, on Ireland's energy and, and climate um, uh, climate change. Nobody was thinking about that at the time. Nobody was talking about it on the airwaves. There was no newspaper articles about it. You know, I was sort of on my own with my research group, working away at these things, building up these modelling tools. Now I'm seeing a huge level of discussion about it. You know, my parents ask me about it. Um, you know, we, you can talk to the, the person on the street about, you know, agricultural emissions or, or emissions from transport. I, you know, I suppose it's a, it's a, it's a matter of optimism. Maybe, maybe I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if, if I thought that it wasn't achievable. Um, but I can see, um, the people in, in politics, in businesses and, 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 and people on the street really, um, uh, have this new level of consciousness that this can happen. Um, so I'm very optimistic. Anna Daly, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And now I'm joined by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly. Fia, what do you make of that letter yesterday from Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar? It was interesting just to see a letter with their signatures, both of them at the bottom. Yeah, to see both signatures at the bottom, it was actually, it was kind of striking to see it. I think the the, the, the purpose of it was to make it very hard for the Greens not to enter talks. Um, but the key test, as you, as, you, as you have discussed there in the last section, is the 7%. Uh, average year reduction in our carbon emissions and it's a bit you know prob- vague on that I would say there are a lot of people in the Greens who thought it could be stronger that if they really wanted to convince them into government that they would have said yes you know we want to do this what they said instead was you know we are serious about kind of heightening our ambitions on carbon emissions above the existing three to three point five percent and we want to talk to you in the phrases we'd like to understand and tease out with you through talks, the specific actions that would have to be taken to achieve at least an average of 7% a year reduction. So if you read that, 
you kind of see that the reticence there on behalf of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil to really get into the detail of that on their own unless the Greens are in the room. And they do also say we would need to bring forward the climate actions that would support good quality, sustainable employment and talk about any changes not having a damaging effect on efforts to you know reboot the economy effectively. So the letter from uh, Varadkar and Martin you know, while saying they want to heighten their ambition for climate reduction, doesn't specifically commit to the 7% target and also says we need to understand the impact that would have on employment, poverty, agricultural practice, public transport. And they say they want to tease out the ramifications and the details of that with the Greens in talks. The Greens, of course, have said so far they will not enter talks until that commitment is given. That is not a commitment in that letter. It is we will talk about it. So in foot of this letter arriving late on Tuesday evening, uh, I think it arrived about half seven in, with the Greens, they had a parliamentary party meeting yesterday, well, on Wednesday, uh, an initial kind of Zoom conference meeting um, at which this was discussed. There will be another meeting today, Thursday, to consider it further, speaking to people in the Greens. It seems that your reaction to this letter, I suppose, uh, tells where you are on the in-out spectrum in the Green Party, that the people who want to go into government see this as a good base to work off and something that should be worked upon. This is very initial reactions, we must say, and those who are not as keen as going into government look at it as a bit of, you know, watery, commitments aren't quite there, there's danger here, what would it be like if we went into government and we had to fight this every day? So the debate the Greens have been having for the last couple of months probably are continuing and this is just the latest iteration of it the the, the letter has kicked off this uh, latest round of that debate I suppose I, I can see why it might be seen as a sort of a honey trap because that's the way it's been depicted you know the, these kind of uh, proposals for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have been depicted from the part but there is a certain rash, rationality isn't there to a request that the Greens uh, give the detail which which myself and Dr Daly were discussing earlier on about how they think you could achieve that 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 seven percent. And is there an element here that the Greens are shying away from some of the harsh realities we were just discussing about things like the national herd? Possibly, like you have to guarantee yourself if you're Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael against these talks failing. So you don't want to give, like, let's say there is an election sometime in the next six seven months, or if if everything fails, and you've committed to policy moves like reducing the national herd and much more aggressive policy interventions to bring about that 7%, that's going to be used against you by your opponents politically. So why would you do it? And there probably is an effort, yes, you're right, to make the Greens really spell out what this would entail. As we've spoken about in the podcast before, there was a lot of frustration earlier in the talks about the Greens not really getting into the detail of how you could get to a 7, 7% reduction target. I, there's a memorable phrase from Dennis Nocton last week uh, where he said that even if everybody dro- stopped driving to work and walked to work and you killed every cow in the country, you wouldn't reach this target. So there's probably an emphasis on if the Greens are serious, make them say it and make them own it. So what happens now? We wait for the Greens to come back. Is there any prospect? Is there going to be a sort of a table tennis batting these things forward and back over the next week or so? We don't yet know because it's it's still like the Greens have only just considered it. Um, I, what Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar are quite keen to do is to get Eamon Ryan into a room, the two of them together where they can talk and it's widely known that Eamon Ryan is the keenest of his party or one of the keenest of his party to go into government. Um, you would just wonder, given the way the Greens have to bring this forward, because there are split opinions in the party, I wouldn't be surprised if there was another letter back before there's a meeting asking for extra detail and a bit of extra commitment. Um, 
it just seems to be something they have to manage internally themselves if they are to move that way. But I think the hope from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil is there will be a meeting at leader level between Ryan Varadkar and Martin and that will be the precursor to full government formation talks. I think at Pat Lee, as Pat Lee was writing about the weekend, once you're in those talks, it's hard to get out. And that also is what's playing on the mind of the Greens. They know that more than anybody. Meanwhile, I think for most of the country, it's fair to say all of this is secondary to the bigger questions of where we are with dealing with coronavirus and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic um, and what the plans are, uh, if there are plans, to gradually ease lockdown and get the country back, you know, back to work, I suppose. Yeah, and that's what's really exercising the political system for the last few weeks. And again, this week, like we saw, you know, divisions emerge in cabinet yesterday about how and when and how far to go when you ease restrictions. First time we've seen that really, you know, politicians, some politicians now realising that it's, it's they who have to make the decisions at points and not necessarily relying on the public health emergency team to do so. So I think that was a more interesting political development we saw this week that the politicians may be starting to realise we have to be mindful of the economy, be mindful of society. I've heard ministers say that they're, they're worried about the effects of, you know, people being at home and those vulnerable vulnerable families. But in the practical day today, the signals coming out of government are that when this period of, of lockdown ends on the 5th of May next week, not to expect anything substantial. It had been flagged that there might be some easing of the cocooning restrictions that you know, the over 70s could be allowed out for a walk uh, once a day if other people stay away. DIY shops could reopen. But if you're saying that the scope for restrictions is very limited, it, there might be even be doubt over that now. But you would think given there is a, a lobby, not just in politics, but in the health sector as well. Like, you know, NFET is a huge, a pretty big group of people. There are divided opinions there about to give people hope to ease or not to ease. And I thought... A tweet from Paul Reed uh, yesterday, the head of the HSE, was very interesting. Like as we saw over the weekend, there were you know tensions between NFET and and the HSE about testing. And Paul Reed sent out a tweet yesterday when he said, "One of the best lessons I learn learned in life is the difference between commitment and compliance. Commitment has to win hearts and minds. This is what we need to do now, and not just talk about compliance." Now I read that as sending a message to other people in the health apparatus he perhaps is on the side of those who think that people need to be given some idea that the sacrifice they're making now are working and there should be sh- some restrictions. Even if there aren't any restri- or easing of restrictions, even if there aren't any easing of restrictions, we do anticipate that we will see the plan from the government in the next few days about the ro- on the roadmap out of this uh, period of restrictions. And if you look across Europe, most European governments are at that stage now. The UK government aren't, but European Union colleagues are at the stage where they're outlining the paths they see out of the restrictions. And I think we're going to get that probably on Friday as well. And you laid out a lot of what might be in that plan in, in yesterday's paper, which was about a, you know, a multi-stage process, probably seven or eight, maybe 10 or more stages if you, if you actually broke it down that applied to different kinds of activities around the country and ranged from everything from different types of shops to behaviour that might be required of people, possibly wearing masks, who knows in certain circumstances, the way that you might use pub- public transport, whether it might be possible for somebody to go for a holiday later in the year in another part of the country and when that type of thing might happen. Obviously, all these questions about schools and various other kinds of activities and lots of stages pertaining to all those kinds of things. And in a way, everybody, even if they don't know exactly when those things are going to happen, they need to see a path of some sort, don't they? Yeah, they need to see 
when and how the restrictions that we have now will ease. And I think the idea, like if you think back to last week when there was that move to effectively ban mass gatherings over 5,000 people, it seems to be that September is emerging as almost like this loose uh, point at which people might feel that the worst of it is over. So in all the discussions here, like, so this plan, although there are no timetables in the latest draft of it, it envisages that the opening up of the schools again in September would be the point at which you would try and open up the wider economy, although everything everything would be subst- uh, subject to social distancing, pubs, offices, everything like that. Now, whether that comes to pass, like that timetable could be kicked back by two months because the progress may not be made in tackling the virus. But I think there's there's an idea that people should be given some sort of notion of what is coming in the future. So by late summer, maybe you could go down the country for a weekend break, uh, go to a holiday home, drive outside your region to get a bit of a break. There's an idea of giving people some respite from looking around their four walls and saying, when is this going to end? Although chillingly, I did note Dr. Anthony Fauci, the chief medical figure in the United States, was saying that he thought it was more than likely that there would be a second wave in autumn, winter this year. But I suppose all these questions are are, are moot and they're, they're open. But one of the kind of key parts of answering those questions about what stage we'd be at and how we would make that work is testing. And in Ireland, as in many other countries, including the United Kingdom and the United States, um, there are still questions about testing testing being at the level it needs to be at in order to uh, ease some of the restrictions. Yes, and there was a bit of testiness uh, in government circles this week about the questions about uh, the speed and the capacity, whether the capacity is there to test and what Killian de Gascoon, who's on NFET, said last night that this target of 100,000 tests a week and the current inability to meet that feeds into the stance that officials are taking when they say that we may not be in a situation next week to ease restrictions, that that is one of a number of elements. Now, if you speak to people on the political side, they would say it is one of a number of elements. It's not the major element. I think if there's a weakness politically, that is it. Because I think Mark Paul and the Irish Times outlined this during the week, that the public feel that they've held up their side of the bargain to give the system space and time to reach capacity to take pressure off the health system. And if one of those stools that that was expected of the state isn't up to requirement, then maybe questions might be asked and pressure would come on. But there is a sensitivity around that issue, absolutely, in government circles. Last question, Fiak. Is there any sense in those government circles at all, or have you heard anything that, I think we've all seen anecdotally, the, uh, the fact that People have relaxed a little bit more over the last week, perhaps 10 days or so. There's, it, it's it's definitely true that there are more cars have been, more traffic has been recorded on the streets. There seem to be more people out uh, and about. Um, is there a kind of a time limit to this that's seen in political circles? Because really, this is not a, a curfew or a lockdown that has been imposed by the strong arm of the state. It's a lockdown that the citizens have have gone along with and in fact have, you know, have embraced. But there has to be some kind of time limit there as well. Absolutely. And one of those is the notion of cocooning. It's not enforceable under the law. It's been required or asked of citizens over 70 that they stay at home pretty much all the time. And there is a sense uh, around government that, yes, patience is wearing thin. People need to be given some hope, but the divisions are there between those such as Simon Harris, because he is the man in, in, in charge of this health response, will be more cautious in easing restrictions to others who look who look around and say, look, you know, people are moving in 
people are moving, like say for example, one of the mooted ideas is that you would allow people to gather outside of groups of four as long as they're socially distancing away from each other. Like that is probably happening already. If you're out for a walk with your partner and you bump into friends of yours, you're going to stop and say hello, although at a distance of two meters. So there's an acknowledgement that some of the things that may be eased off on in the weeks ahead that people are already doing. And you just wonder... Government has spoken before about the public and businesses being ahead of the state when we went into this lockdown. You just wonder, is there now an acknowledgement that uh, citizens and businesses are ahead of the state in coming out of it and whether the government is able to pen that back to halt the virus and prevent, as you say, further outbreaks. Like we've seen in Germany where they use restrictions this week, some parts of the country are seeing spikes in infections. So there's going to be a way to go on all this. It could be very interesting indeed. Look, thanks to Fiac for that. Thanks also to Dr. Hannah Daly for joining us earlier and to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. Remember that you can support this podcast and all the journalism which the Irish Times is continuing to produce at this very difficult time for media by going to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you do want to get in touch with us, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.